Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, Central Service. It is so great to be here. Two weeks in a row for me. I was here for Love London last week, so it's a real treat, especially as part of your dedication service. So in Stockwell, we're getting quite used to these. We've got our 12th one next week in four years because we produced, if that's the right word, 40 children in just under four years. We definitely see this is the way to grow the service in South London. <laughs> we're going for that one. Um, and it, I just love, I really do love them. Families are so important to us. Um, and we really do want to help families do London life really well, which is why we have days like today. Um, before I get into my talk today, let me just first say that if you are here for the dedications, if you are friends and family of those who dedicate their little ones, thank you so much for being here. You are so welcome here, especially if church is the last place that you would normally find yourself on a Sunday. Um, your presence here is so appreciated, and I hope today that as well as enjoying kind of the family stuff, um, that it might be interesting and thought-provoking, this service. Um, at the very least, you get to find out what it is your friends get up to when they're not having brunch with you on a Sunday. So, so this is it. This is what they do. Um, as a church, we are halfway through a teaching series that we are have called Faithful Presence, Living Like Jesus in a Broken World. And we're going to be talking a bit more about that today. And the idea behind it is really quite simple. How do we help one another follow Jesus in the great city of London? Um, how do we help follow Jesus in effectively a post, uh, the post-Christian culture like the one that we find ourselves in? How do we remain faithfully present in this great city of ours in order that we might do much good here? and show more people the beauty and the truth and the goodness of the person and way of Jesus. And I guess for any of us who have kind of caring responsibilities for children, that's a question we need to answer for them too. How do we help our children to follow Jesus and the way he modeled to live? How do we do that when most of the people around us and most of kind of the cultural stories that we are being told and the structures that we are in and the people we're around, a lot of the time are kind of trying to point us in a different direction? Well, I think that one of the key things that will help both us and our children to remain faithfully present in London to do good here is by being part of a strong, deep, diverse but unified, loyal, generous, loving community. Now, I am well aware that London may not be necessarily known for deep community. Yes, you find a pockets of amazing community here, but actually, as a whole, all the stats point to this being a city that is kind of massively populated on the one hand, but also incredibly lonely on the other. And actually, that isn't just a London thing, that is a UK thing at the moment. I don't know if you heard about this last year, but Theresa May appointed a minister for loneliness on the back of a report that found that 20% of all UK adults feel lonely most or all of the time. That's one in five of us. And most reporting at this time kind of focused on the elderly, which obviously there's a big problem there. But it's not just the elderly who experience loneliness. Um, on holiday this summer, I read the brilliant Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Then if you've read that, it turns out that Eleanor is not completely fine at all. Um, kind of, it's childhood trauma and there's loads of stuff going on. But one of the things that really spoke to me was outside of work, she is almost completely isolated. When she says goodbye to her work colleagues on a Friday, that's often the last words that she says out loud to another person until Monday morning. Edna exists in this world where she is surrounded by people the whole time and yet suffers this kind of complete isolation. 
And whilst our experience may not be as extreme as hers, I'm sure that many of us know what it's like to be around people all the time and yet still feel this dull ache of loneliness. A dull ache that exists, I believe, because in all of us, there's a longing for more. There is a longing to not just be surrounded by people, but to belong. To belong to a group of people who truly know us and love us anyway. And so when we don't have that, we can really feel it. When I was about 18, I read a biography of the musician Keith Green. Um, Keith uh, kind of grew to relative fame in the 70s in America and California. Um, and when he and his wife Melody got married, um, they bought a house, they moved in, and then one of their friends, who was a struggling musician, kind of moved in as well. And then they ended up having more friends, and then friends of friends, and then people they didn't know move in as well. So they had this house, and they bought the house next door. And then they ended up buying, uh, renting five houses in the neighborhood around them. They had 75 people that they were looking after at one point. Um, from struggling musicians, to addicts, to the homeless, to pregnant teenagers, to prostitutes, and their home was dubbed the greenhouse, the place where people grow. And the way that they wrote about that was just so utterly compelling to me as an 18-year-old. Now, their context, musicians in 70s California, obviously very, very different to mine. But there was something about it that seemed just so appealing. And I think part of it was the idea of building a home that was for more than just 2.4 children a home that could provide love for people that existed outside of the quote-unquote normal nuclear family. Actually, maybe a home that looked a little bit more like the homes that we find in the pages of the Bible. Because I would suggest that much of our ideas about the way we live with and alongside one another, the ways of living that just feel natural and normal and just the way things are, have been more influenced by Western individualism than they have by Jesus and his early followers. I think that the church in the West has followed the lead of the culture that it has been a part of and has too heavily individualized faith. So faith is almost exclusively just about me and God. This is what Tish Harrison Warren, an Anglican priest, says. She says, for a couple of centuries now, evangelical Christians have focused almost exclusively on a personal relationship with God, on individual conversion and spiritual growth. Many feel that the church community, if it is necessary at all, is primarily intended to serve our individual spiritual needs or to group us together with like-minded people, a kind of holy fraternity. If we believe that church is merely a voluntary society of people with shared values, then it is entirely optional. If the church helps you with your personal relationship with God, great. If not, I know a great lunch place that's open on Sunday. But while an individual relationship with Jesus is an important part of the Christian life, it is not the sum total of the Christian life. Our relationship with God is never less than an intimate relationship with Christ. But it is always more than that. And the more she is talking about there is deep, loving community within the church. Deep community with people who are also trying to follow the way of Jesus and live with Jesus. And there are dozens of places in the scriptures that we could go to this morning to see just how vital the Bible thinks it is to live in deep community. But today we're just going to have a quick look at one of them. And this is when Jesus calls his first disciples. So Matthew chapter 4, which will come up on the screen behind me. So Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. 
At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. Do you see what's going on here? The very first person Jesus calls to be a disciple, to be a follower of his, to be someone who learns to do what he does and live in the way that he did, is not one person at all. It's two people, quickly joined by two more. It's a group, it's a community. From the very beginning, it was crystal clear to anyone that the invitation to follow Jesus involved the invitation to be part of this new group that he was forming. And not only that, Jesus then sets about establishing this new group as effectively a surrogate family. He starts talking them about them as brothers and sisters to one another. In fact, at one point, Jesus is speaking in a house. There's a crowd of people there, and his mother and his brothers come, and they kind of knock at the door trying to get through to him, and someone comes in and says, Jesus, your mother, your brothers are here. And he looks around and says, who are my mother and brothers? And he points to his disciples being taught by him at that point. He said, these, these are my brothers, my sisters, my mother." Now, this was a huge statement at the time. As Joseph Hellerman points out in his excellent book, When the Church was a Family, in the culture of the, ter- the time, there's effectively three foundational societal truths. And the first was that the group took priority over the individual. So society at that time was focused more upon a person's responsibility to the group than a person's kind of individual rights over and against the group. And then secondly, a person's most important group that they belonged to was their biological family. Actually, specifically, those who shared the bloodline that ran through the men. So um, this next slide is my family tree. Um, The people in red, they are the only people that kind of the New Testament, uh, the culture at that time, would class as my kin, as my family. So you see, you've got my granddad, my dad, me there in the middle, my two sisters, and my kids. Everyone else is not part of my kin. So my sister's kids, my nieces and nephews, they're not really part of my kin because they're my brothers-in-law's kin. And actually, this is the crazy thing. Jackie, my wife, she's not actually part of my bloodline because she's part of her father's and her siblings' bloodline. And so this leads us to kind of the third foundational truth is that the closest family bond in the time of Jesus was not parent to child. It was not even husband and wife. It was brother and sister. It was your siblings. It was your siblings more than anyone else who deserved your undivided loyalty. Your siblings more than anyone else that could be counted on to look after you if things got tough. Your siblings more than anyone else that captured the affection of your heart. And so do you see just how kind of radically subversive Jesus was being by saying that his new group of disciples were now brothers and sisters? Because this meant that Jesus was teaching that for his followers, their primary, not their only by any means, but their primary loyalty and responsibility was now towards one another. This is what Jesus meant when he said that the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. He wasn't just saying because you guys get on really well. He was saying the world is going to stand up and notice when you, who are from different families, different kinship groups, different backgrounds, different social statuses, different ethnicities, different uh, occupations, political persuasions, when you who are different are more loyal to one another, care more about one another, live in closer community with one another than you do with your quote-unquote kin. 
And as with all things, what Jesus starts, Paul continues. And so you see from this next chart that in his writings in the New Testament, he uses kind of this family language over and over, and specifically sibling language. Over and over, Paul reminds the early church and us by extension that you are now brothers and sisters. Act like it. That's, you can sum up most of his stuff to, in the letters. Your brothers and sisters, act like it. Your brothers and sisters, just act like it. And it appears that for the first few hundred years of the church's life, that is exactly what happened. So one of the early church fathers, a guy called Tertullian, who oversaw a number of churches in North Africa around the end of the second century, he wrote, we call ourselves brothers. So we who are united in mind and soul have no hesitation about sharing what we have. Everything is coming among us except our wives. <laughs> Good to know. And it wasn't just the Christian leaders writing about themselves that said this. We have writings from um, a second century Roman intellectual called Lucian. Um, and he like, dismissed Christianity as like, being for the ignorant, um, dismissed it as being irrelevant. And as he's writing about the Christian community, he says well, it's ridiculous, first because they worship Jesus who was crucified, and that's just a ridiculous idea, isn't it? But then secondly, they lived in such a radically different way to everyone else. Uh, this is what he wrote, and you can just kind of imagine the mocking tone. He says, their first lawgiver, i.e. Jesus, persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another after they have transgressed once for all by denying the Greek gods and by worshipping that crucified sophist himself and living under his laws. I had no idea what sophist meant. I had to look that up. Uh, it means a philosopher who reasons with clever but false arguments. That's a, a free one for you there. Every day is a school day. Um, so their first lawgiver, Jesus, persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another Therefore, they despise all things indiscriminately and consider them common property. What idiots he could have written, but didn't. So even a cynic like Lucian looking in to the Christian community could identify this sibling mindset between them, and he could trace it back to Jesus and what Jesus taught and conclude this is the reason they are living the way that they did. The first followers of Jesus and those who came immediately after them lived in deep community as brothers and sisters. They may have been ridiculed it by the elite of the day, but actually it was just this commitment to deep community that enabled them to remain faithfully present in cities and do so much good, to care for the poor, to care for the sick, to care about education, to run businesses that created jobs and wealth, to produce amazing work of art, to like, do philosophy and science and to look after the kids that no one else wanted to look after, all in the midst of a lot of extreme violent persecution. And I think it is so easy to argue that it was actually their commitment to deep community that made their witness to the radical, transforming power of the love of Jesus so compelling that within a hundred years of that first 120 surrogate brothers and sisters that Jesus had, they had grown across the whole known world, inviting millions and millions of people to join Jesus and his new family. As Joseph Hellerman writes, to arrive at a truly comprehensive explanation for the expansion of Christianity, we must move beyond ideology, beliefs, and enter into the social world behavior of the early Christians. People did not convert to Christianity solely because of what the early Christians believed. They converted because of the way in which the early Christians behaved. I don't think anything has changed at all. Jesus is still making his appeal, his invitation to the world through his church. 
he's still inviting people to, to follow him as part of a deep community of brothers and sisters who love each other extravagantly and, generos- and generously and sacrificially. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of walking into someone's apartment and, or their house and thinking, I want to live here. I mean, everything about this is amazing. Their furniture is amazing. Their color schemes, like everything's ergonomically designed. It is brilliant. Um, that our friends, Sharon and Joseph, have a house like this. We went there with our seven-year-old. She's like, literally, can I live here, please? Like, you ever had that experience? I think that's what the church should be shooting for when we talk about community. That when people get close to our community, they see the way that we interact. They see the way that we care for one another. See the way that we talk with and to one another. See the way that we forgive one another's mistakes. See the way we encourage one another's gifts and dreams. Even share our stuff and be generous with one another. That they should look at that and think, I want to live there. I want that life. Can can we swap? And we get to say, we don't have to swap. You can come. Jesus is inviting you to be part of this. But sadly, I think so many people who have bumped up against the church throughout history, they haven't found a community like this, have they? They have been turned off by what they've seen rather than invited in. I think we have quite a long way to go with this. But don't you want to try? Don't you want to try and do something like that here in London of all places? To become a community of such depth and strength that is attractive to people. So how do we go about building that kind of community? Well, I guess the answer that you're expecting me to say is we just need to love one another like Jesus did. We just need to love one another with humble, sacrificial, self-giving, grace-filled, forgiveness-soaked love. And you'd be right. I'm a church pastor. Of course, that's what I'm going to say. But let's try and make this a little bit more concrete. I've just got four things that I think really help build community in a city. And I'm really not trying to put a moral judgment on this and say if you don't do these things that you're bad. I'm just saying from my experience, it looks like these things help. So the first one, geographical proximity. If you want building community to be that much easier, then live close to the people you're trying to do that with. So we celebrated our 15th anniversary as a church last year. That means Jackson and I have been in London for 15 years. We came to help start the church in 2004. When we moved, David and Philippa had moved with their kids. Another couple, Adrian and Julia, had moved with their kids. Andy Tilsley was living with them at the time. And so we're moving to London. And as we all know, London is a big place, isn't it? Where do you think we chose to live out of the whole of London? London was our oyster. Well, you see from this next slide, uh, the Strouds lived in Fulham. And the Holloways, next one, they lived in Fulham too. So where do you think we chose to rent? You guessed it, in Fulham. Five streets down from where the Strouds lived. I literally had to walk past David Philippa's house every day for six months to get to work which meant I often knocked on the door on the way home and had a cup of tea. It made it so much easier. And now what I'm obviously not saying is everyone move out to Fulham. I'm obviously not saying, oh, all of you sell up and move into Blackfriars. I'm obviously not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that building community will be made easier if you live closer to the people that you're trying to do that with. So when you are thinking about moving, When your tenancy runs up, or by some miracle and the grace of God you are thinking about buying in London, have this as one of the categories. It's not just, are there good schools around, and is my commute easy? Is is this close to my community? Have that. And as we're talking about this, let me just push that a little bit more. 
maybe think about not even just living close, but even in the very same house. So Jackson and I have been married for 17 years now. Apart from our first year, we have lived with people the whole time, and we have loved it. Uh, we had two girls seven years ago, so they took up the space that other people were living in. Um, but then a couple of years ago, we thought, we, we want to do this again. We want people to live with us. And so we uh, sold our flat, and we're now renting a three-bedroom house with our friend Davina. Uh, this next picture is um, our first breakfast together. I don't think any of the women in that picture will thank me for showing you that picture particularly. We do pancakes every Saturday. Um, but it has been amazing, so much so that we're in the process of playing, uh, praying and trying to work out how do we buy a six-bedroom house around the corner from us because we want people to live with us. Um, and it's not just us in Stockwell. We've got families, couples, singles thinking about could we live together? Around the corner from us, there is 10 of our friends living all together in one house, trying to work out what intentional community looks like. Now, I know for some of you, that sounds like a cult. For some of you, they're like, this is what, what have I stepped into? There's some hippie commune going on in London. I get that. Take a breath. It's all okay. No one's saying you have to do this. Probably best if you think that, then you don't. Like, you can do your own thing. That's fine. But what I am saying, there will be people, I guarantee, who are looking for different ways of being in London. Instead of nuclear family, extended family. Or let's just be frank. It costs a lot of money to live in London. We know that, don't we? Maybe living with other people, pooling your resources is a way that you could do that. If you want to stay in London, if you want to build down roots, if you want to build deep community here, then maybe this is something to consider. But, so just consider it. I'm not saying do it in any way, just consider it. But the, the big point of this is live close to the people you're trying to build community with. The second thing that helps build community is time. It just takes time. This isn't something that happens overnight, because building community is more like tending a garden than it is building IKEA furniture. It's not something you can do in an evening. It takes showing up week in, week out, when sometimes you'd rather be anywhere else than with your community group. And let me just say this, FOMO, the fear of missing out, is an enemy to community. We just have to kill it. You guys live in London. You know interesting people doing interesting things the whole time. There will always be better things, more exciting things to do than go along to your connect group on a Wednesday night or even come here on a Sunday morning. There always will. And your work, for most of you, will always be asking you to like, always be trying to eat in to your spare time, to the time you could be spending with community you do at work. Like, you could come here and you could have amazing experiences and, like, within two years, your Instagram feed would look amazing, have loads of stories to tell, work could be going well. But if you don't spend the time, the weekend, the unsexy, just regular time with your community, after a few years, you will have no community to show for it. You just have to put in the time. And then thirdly, I think building community takes both vulnerability and accountability. If our longing to belong can only be met by being within a group of people that truly know us, know all of us and love us anyway, then we need to make the courageous decision to be both vulnerable and accountable. Vulnerability says, this is who I am. This is the best of me. This is the worst of me. This is just me. And accountability says, I know I'm not where I want to be, so please help me become the person that I think God's called me to be. Vulnerability can only happen in a community when the community says, we accept you as you are. With all your weaknesses and flaws, we accept you. You belong here. 
And accountability can only happen when a community says, but we know you are made for more than this, and we will lift you higher. We will do all we can to support and encourage you. Which, incidentally, is why diversity is so important within a community. Because without diversity, the unspoken message is, you have to be like this to belong here. Rather than, you are free to be yourself and pursue who you are. This first one, that's a great way to build a tribe. This second one is what builds community. And so the only way that we get to be known enough to feel loved enough is by revealing more of ourselves than we feel comfortable with. And that is a metaphor before you get freaked out by that. We have to reveal who we are. We have to risk vulnerability in order to be known. But we also have to risk asking others to keep us to account. One without the other isn't just, it's just not going to work. You have vulnerability without accountability, and everyone feels known and understood, but no change happens. We all stay just the way we are. But you have accountability, but no vulnerability, then actually change doesn't happen either because you're not safe enough to reveal the deepest parts of you that really do need to change. You need everyone in the community being vulnerable and keeping one another to account. And it takes so much courage to do that. It really does. But if we want to build community here, we're going to have to be very brave. And then lastly, in order to build lasting community, we all need a healthy dose of realism. This is what the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about coming to terms with the reality that building community is always harder and messier and more painful than we thought. He says, the sooner this shock of disillusionment that living in community isn't what we'd hoped for comes to an individual and community, the better for both. Every human dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. It is so easy to love the idea of community. It is much harder to love the people within your community. Because people in their worst moments are hard work. They are messy. They make mistakes. They let one another down. They break promises. They are selfish. And I know this because that is true of me. All of those things are true of me. And this is where the foundation of the gospel of Jesus really comes in. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that he loves us in our worst moments. He forgives us over and over when we mess up and fail. He is committed to us with a rugged, shatterproof love. A love so strong that it sent him to the cross. A love so powerful that it raised him from the dead again. A love so potent that it gives us the power to love in the same way that he does. To forgive and to have grace and to be generous to one another, even in our worst moments. Earlier, I was a little bit flippant when I kind of scooted over loving like Jesus being the foundation of community because I truly believe that it is. It is a model for how we are to live. You read the life of Jesus and you say, this is, yes, I want this. It's a model, but it's also the means, it's the power, the power in us that enables us to do that. And so, yes, you can build community outside of this. Of course you can. But actually, if we want to stay faithfully present in this city, if we want to do all the good that we want to do, we have to do it together. And that means taking, like, remembering and reflecting upon the love of Jesus for us, 
in order to give us grace to love one another. Maybe I could have the band back. So that's my challenge to you this morning, just to think about this stuff. Think about the kind of life that you really want in London. There are good things here, but I think the greatest thing is life in community on mission together to see this city changed. And if you want that too, then you might have to make some tough decisions. You might have to choose this thing which is good and like this thing which is great over this thing which is good. Like that's going to happen for all of us, but I would say community has to be the heart of what we do. Like people are cynical about the church, and rightly so. Like they're cynical about the things that we have said and we have done, and rightly so. I think this is the way that we show them the truth of the gospel. Like a group of people that should have no earthly reason to be in the same room as one another. Not just that, but loving one another deeply. Treating one another as brothers and sisters. Sharing stuff. Sharing their wealth, their generosity. Like that is the thing that's going to speak to our city. And so in order to do that, we have to remember that we are loved like that. That we have been invited into this by Jesus, called our brother. God as our father. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to focus on that first and foremost. I want these conversations to happen, but conversations can happen later. Right now, we're going to stand up and we're going to worship him. We're going to sing a song that talks about his reckless love for us. A love that came and pursued us. That climbed up mountains and kicked down walls and like lights up shadows and all the other amazing metaphors in this song. We're going to sing about that. And I just encourage you, as you do, allow that to sink deep. And then take that and turn it out to your world. Why don't we stand and let's sing together.